The following is used with permission of the Columbia University Press. Hi, I'm Ethan Warren, and you're listening to Pod Thomas Anderson, a nine-part miniseries on the films of Paul Thomas Anderson, brought to you by One Heat Minute Productions. Every week, I'm bringing you excerpts from my book, The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha, now available wherever you order your books, as well as insights on Anderson and his work from critics, podcasters, actors, and more. This week, I'll be discussing Anderson's second feature, Boogie Nights, with guests Mitchell Beaupre, Robert Daniels, and John Gabris. Boogie Nights represents a convenient case study of the outsized power afforded to young auteurs during the 90s indie boom. Michael DeLuca, then president of production at New Line Cinema, had recently failed to secure deals for both the indie sensation Pulp Fiction and the sleeper success Rushmore. Unwilling to forego the opportunity to shepherd another breakout effort from a rising star, DeLuca, who fancied himself the 90s equivalent of the financiers who supported the daring work of the 1970s, engineered an unusually supportive environment for Paul Thomas Anderson's porn production epic. Boogie Nights was conceived as a vision of grandiosity. Pitching the film to DeLuca, Anderson proposed a four-hour runtime, including disco intermission, and an NC-17 rating, two components that would have proved commercially risky individually and could have spelled box office poison in tandem. DeLuca managed to talk Anderson down to an eventual runtime of just over two and a half hours and an R rating, and if the resulting film was neither quite the expansive vision Anderson dreamed of nor quite the cultural and financial sensation that DeLuca did, it nevertheless heralded the arrival of a major Hollywood voice in a way that his debut, Hard Eight, could never hope to do. Boogie Nights is a classic Star is Born narrative, a rise and fall and rise again showbiz myth that's nearly as old as show business itself. What distinguishes this particular retelling is the star at the center, the prodigiously endowed Dirk Diggler, Mark Wahlberg, who leaves home in 1977 to make a name for himself under the guidance of idealistic porno auteur Jack Horner, Burt Reynolds. The decade-spanning story is fleshed out with an ensemble of porn stars and technicians, including Dirk's best friend, the swaggering Reed Rothschild, John C. Riley, maternal cocaine addict Amber Waves, Julianne Moore, Pollyanna-ish high school dropout roller girl, Heather Graham, and Buck Swope, Don Cheadle, who dreams of retiring from the skin flick game to open a high-end stereo store. I mean, we talk a lot about the, this movie and what it contains content-wise, dialogue, and uh, like the story it tells, but... The story it tells is also a visual story, and the fucking look of this movie, the look of people, it's such a specific time, location, and subculture that the look just gets to be presented, the art gets to be presented in such a way where everyone looks cool, everyone is sexy, sweaty, greasy, gross, all the time. Like, music is absolutely bang, I mean, you can cut in me saying the music is absolutely amazing in any one of your PTA episodes of this podcast. But in Boogie Nights, it really fucking sets the tone for the kind of movie you're watching. The looks of everyone, the looks of all the locations, the dynamics, the haircuts. Oh, fuck. Does this movie feature some of the best haircuts? Cheadle, fucking Bill Macy, the, 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 the hairstyling. Uh, Dirk, uh, uh, John C. Riley, the hairstyling on the Burt. Bert, dude, just listing the fucking cast of this movie is insane. And, yes, and again, put that in any Paul Thomas Anderson conversation. The cast of this movie is wild. It's He's got like that thing where like 30th on the call sheet is like Luis Guzman or someone. You know, it's like, holy shit, you've got a fucking cast. <laughs> 
The film's first half tracks Dirk's stratospheric rise to industry dominance, but once the 1970s give way to the 1980s, a shift that coincides with Dirk succumbing to cocaine addiction, while the porno industry trades celluloid for video as the preferred means of production, the ensemble collectively begins a vertiginous fall from grace until each experiences a respective rock bottom. At the end of their trials, however, the members of the Airsats family unit find themselves reunited, bruised but not yet beaten, and prepared to resume their life's work. Among major critics, praise for Boogie Nights was virtually unanimous. Owen Gleiberman described it as a purer hit of exhilaration than any movie this year, while Mick LaSalle declared it the first great film about the 1970s to come out since the 1970s. Eddie Adams from Torrance. I knew you'd make it. Take the bus all the way here? Yeah. It wasn't bad, though. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great. I got some people I want you to meet. What's all this crazy question they're asking me? This is the craziest party that could you like music? Oh, I love music. Okay. All kinds of music. Rock, jazz, classic. Oh, I want you to meet a couple of great people. Buck. Thank you, Barnett. Nice to meet you. Oh, this is a new fella. Oh, oh. is that a Pacha? That is a Pacha. Ooh. Pacha's face, right? That's, that's right. Nice to meet you guys. All right. Great people. Oh, yeah. Hey, Reed! Rito! I want you to meet the new boy on the street. Eddie Adams. Hi, Eddie. Hi, Eddie. Reed Rothschild. I want you to stick around for a while, okay? Sure. Make yourself special. All right. So you live on the street? No, no. Oh, I thought Jack just said you did. No. You want a drink? Sure. Margarita? Great. Wow. Two, four, mm, whatever. Can I ask you something? Uh-huh. Do you work out? Yeah. Yeah, you look like it. What do you squat? A two. Super. Super. What do I do? What do you squat? 350. Wow. It's no BS. That's a lot. Where do you work out? Torrance, where I live. Cool. Hey, you ever go to Vince's out here? Oh, no. I would have seen you. I've always wanted to work out of Vince's. Cool, here. Taste that. Oh, rock and roll. Right? Hey, did you ever see that movie Star Wars? Oh, about four times. People tell me I look like Han Solo. Really? What do you bench? Well, you tell first. I asked you first. Same time. Cool. Are you ready? Ready. One, One two, two, three. three. You didn't say anything. Oh, neither did you. Though reviews were often tempered by comparisons to other artists, when is a Martin Scorsese film not a Martin Scorsese film, Martin Glanville asked rhetorically, before answering when it's a Paul Thomas Anderson film. And there were qualms over whether Anderson had effectively modulated the mixture of the taboo and the traditional that he aspired to merge. He hasn't bothered to distinguish his good instincts from his bad ones, Charles Taylor wrote. It would be a shame if such great things were expected of him that he wasn't given a chance to mature. At least judging by journalistic accounts, mature could hardly describe Anderson's behavior during the production of Boogie Nights. 
at least when it came to interaction with his benefactors. Seemingly smarting from his contentious relationship with Reicher Entertainment, distributors of Hard Eight, he built as much creative autonomy as possible into his deal and proceeded to make a nuisance of himself when asked to compromise. He clearly saw his job as divided equally between producing a great film and defending that film from theoretically hostile financiers, an attitude that baffled and alienated DeLuca and other top brass who had significantly deferred to his demands. As many critics noted, multiplex success would be a difficult bar for Boogie Nights to clear on the basis of sexual content alone, and Michael DeLuca's dreams of New Line's own Pulp Fiction were somewhat dampened by a worldwide gross of just over $43 million against a reported budget of $15 million, which is hardly comparable to the almost $108 million gross and $8 million budget on Tarantino's film. Still, Boogie Nights had a strong showing during awards season, at least for Reynolds, Moore, and Anderson, who were nominated for Oscars in, respectively, Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Original Screenplay. With this haul, combined with star-making profiles of Anderson in major outlets, Christine McKenna described Boogie Nights as an act of bravado worthy of Orson Welles, DeLuca and Newline were convinced that, at least for now, the Paul Thomas Anderson gamble had paid off. Okay, so for me, if I had to choose a PTA movie, uh, and, I, and this is like a great choice, this is at being a buffet of all your favorite foods, uh, mega-talented director, makes a lot of great movies, but Boogie Nights has been with me for the longest. Now, at other points in my life, Magnolia was like taking over my brain and Herrick Weiss was taking over my brain. But I chose Boogie Nights because Boogie Nights was with me in so many different phases in my life. And I think other viewers of the movie who are around my age or older might be able to relate. Because when, when I first saw it, I was young enough that it was just funny and sexy. And that was enough for me to really enjoy a movie is that it had funny parts. You and your buddies could quote Dirk and you could quote, you know, Nautilus, Bench 300. You know, like we could do all that shit. Uh, and it was hot. You know what I mean? You got Roller Girl. You got Amber Waves. You got all the kind of horniness that's flying around the adult film industry in the movie. Sexy women, jacked dudes. Uh, you're into it for that reason when you're younger. Then you get a little older and you're like, shit, this is actually kind of like a bleak tale of like uh, people spiraling and losing losing connections. And and then you're like, oh, man, this this is sad. It's about the plight of a of, a, of an entire art form and how it, uh, you know, shatters these people and sends them off in all these different directions and, and it chews you up and destroys you. Then you get a little older and then you're like, fuck, it's about family and how you don't find family via birth. You find family via like your energy and like your location and your and your and your journey in life. And then you start work if you're me, you start working in the entertainment industry. And then when you not watch Boogie Nights next, you see it as like a production family. And then you have a whole new idea towards that. And you're like, yeah, the show must go on. Oh God, the producer. Oh fuck, the DP. Oh God, I'm sorry. I fucking I shouldn't have done that. Uh, got the sound guy. Uh, uh, PS PSH. Like. And, and for me, every beat of the way, and then recently, and then this is the last step for me, I watched it at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery uh, this past uh, summer, maybe last summer, introduced by John C. Riley, and that's when the movie hit me. I'm, I've, I've been living in L.A. for 10 years, but that's when it hit me is like, holy shit, this is an L.A. movie, too. This is a Valley movie. This is a Los Angeles movie. Like, and that just uh, added so, so for me, 
someone who's always been into funny stuff, who's always been into sexy stuff, who's always been into family, who's always been into like all these facets of my personality that I enjoy in art in in, in different mediums. Uh, over the course of the time, I found it in Boogie Nights, and that Boogie Nights to me is an wildly versatile film. You can show it to a 13-year-old who will, like, snicker through the whole thing. And you can show it to, like, a 40-year-old who's like, shit, I'm, I'm so bummed I never really stuck with my high school comedy group or whatever. <laughs> this showed me kind of, like, a side of Philip Seymour Hoffman I'd always been kind of aware of. He always, in his early career, was very vulnerable. Um, but, like, he plays such a klutz in this <laughs> that it was just it was so endearing and i think i'm i'm like in a movie that is you know filled with sex drugs <laughs> cursing and any other bit of bodily fluid um, I'm, I'm most drawn to, it's funny not most drawn to philip seymour hoffman in it but i am <laughs> After this quick break. Now I would love to read a little bit more from my book, The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha, talking about one of the most common ways of discussing Anderson's work. Again, this excerpt is used with permission of Columbia University Press. The virtuosic opening shot of Boogie Nights, a three-minute Steadicam move that tracks from a crane above Hot Tracks nightclub to ground level and through the doors to roam the dance floor and introduce the film's ensemble, is explicitly described in Anderson's screenplay. This is one continuous shot, Anderson wrote, one of a bevy of technical instructions included in the opening three pages of his script. Anderson is in love with his camera, Roger Ebert wrote in his review of Boogie Nights, and a bit of a show-off. the hot tracks shot is mentioned in more than a few reviews of boogie nights and it's not hard to see why the scene is a technical marvel that invites attention while serving the story, establishing a tone of giddy sensory overload upon which Anderson will build across the remaining two and a half hours of screen time. But it's not merely the skill involved that invited critical commentary. Ebert's note on Anderson's show-off qualities referred just as much to the shot's evident basis in the famed Copacabana shot in Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas, another extended Steadicam move that introduces members of an illicit community scattered throughout a nightclub. Anderson has no qualms about borrowing from the best, Janet Maslin wrote in her review. Maslin proceeded to note the resemblance between the film's vision of the porn industry and Robert Altman's depiction of the country music scene in Nashville, and the names Scorsese and Altman would recur frequently throughout the film's critical assessments. One of the things that I really appreciate about PTA, because he is like a, a director who somebody of like my generation gets into as like an entry point into getting into like more serious cinema or whatever like diverting a little bit from the mainstream like obviously these are movies that were seen a lot by the mainstream especially like boogie nights but he is somebody who you discover him and then through discovering him is how i discovered like altman especially was a huge one who like i 
I'm sure I was aware of like Scorsese and familiar with what he had been doing and then seeing like his, you know, influence on PTA, but Altman, I don't think I had even heard of until I started watching Boogie Nights and Magnolia. And so discovering like Nashville and shortcuts like came solely through me discovering PTA and I'm extremely grateful for that. And I think that that's one of the beauties of a filmmaker like PTA who certainly owes a lot to his influences, but then especially over the course of his career, you kind of see him go from like owing a certain amount to his influences to really finding himself within like those influences and becoming his own filmmaker and like putting his own stamp on what he's doing, which you can still see in Boogie Nights. Like it doesn't feel at any times like a ripoff or an imitation. It is a director who clearly adores his influences and pays homage to them at times, but is like already his own person. While promoting Boogie Nights, Anderson was frequently asked about the critical tendency to discuss his opening shot in relation to Scorsese's iconic one. Rather than refute accusations of theft by claiming some unique vision, he argued that critics simply failed to acknowledge his full repertoire of influences. I wish people's film vocabularies would go back further than three or four years, he lamented to a reporter for USA Today in 1997, suggesting that fully appreciating his film would require as much familiarity with Ophels and Lubitsch as with Scorsese and Altman. Indeed, Boogie Nights is densely packed with, some might say, entirely composed of references, from those overt Scorsese nods to more arcane pilfering. One shot that follows a young woman below the surface of a swimming pool references a similar shot in the 1964 Cuban film I Am Cuba, though Anderson boasts on the commentary track that we came back up out of the pool for dialogue and they didn't. This wealth of references, so integral to the infrastructure of Boogie Nights and similarly present in Hard Eight and Magnolia, quickly gave rise to a prevalent manner of discussing Anderson's voice, as a repository of influences rather than an innovator of form or style. These first three works do not so much place themselves in conversation with their influences as echo them, if not quote them directly. Given this overriding interest in showing off all the flashy movie references Anderson knows, Jason Spurb declared in his book on Anderson, Boogie Nights is a film of cinephiliac hollowness. If Anderson was relatively even-keeled about this approach to his work while promoting Boogie Nights, he grew frustrated over time and attempted to shirk the issue of influence while promoting Magnolia. Yet reporters continued to dog him with comparisons to Altman's shortcuts, culminating in Anderson's outburst with a reporter for the Austin American Statesman. I don't know what you want me to say, he snapped when asked about the resemblance between his L.A. ensemble drama and Altman's. I guess I ripped it all off. The reporter attempted to equivocate, but Anderson persisted. I just fucking ripped it off. That's what I do. That's all I do. While it may not be all he does, it remains a significant element, and it thus represents, for better or worse, one of the richer lenses through which to view not just Boogie Nights, but his entire filmography. As an allegory, in Jason Spurb's words, for Anderson's own cinephiliac life. Now, for me, the Alfred Molina scene is, you know, for me, for viewers... The Alfred Molina scene is, you know, peak movie. It's so thrilling. And here's here's a few reasons why. Amazing, amazing song choice. It's Night Ranger. I got my buddy Ben Rogers, co-host of the Action Boys. I got him that LP. He bought a jukebox and I got him a, the Night Ranger LP for that reason alone so that he could put it on with his robe and throw. I could throw fireworks around. Uh but I think a lot of people, maybe less so young people because of like the internet and stuff, but I think old, a certain generation of people have been in the situation 
That's kind of simple. I mean, obviously not set up for a robbery and that level of that extra level of tension. But we've definitely had to go buy drugs or have someone come to your place to sell you drugs. And the dynamic has been like, man, I wish this would wrap up soon. <laughs> and it like, like you go to buy drugs and it's like, oh man, let me play you a song. You're like, no, honestly, just hand me the fucking weed and, and I'll give you the money and I can leave your house. Your dog is barking so loud or your concubine is throwing firecrackers too loud. Uh, uh, and that scene just has so much going on narratively and then so much going on in like character and design work and it's fucking Alfred Molina it's Doc Ock it's like this uh, intense like gravitas actor being an absolute fucking you know head case and then uh, just also the coke energy of everybody is it's so powerful just sitting there like I've seen the movie maybe 40 times. I did not watch it again for this conversation, but I'm having like an ab absolute like biological reaction because I can feel how I felt the first, I was like, you feel like you're fucking wedged on the couch with them going like, what's going on here, man? Don't do it, man. <laughs> But they are so far over their fucking heads. <laughs> and then, like, Molina, the way that he just plays it in this kind of, like, big, like, Al Pacino and Scarface kind of style. <laughs> um, and then the, the whole decor, too, which is, like, so, like, painfully, like, late 80s still sticking around in the 90s somehow. <laughs> like, um, I love everything about that scene. I love the way that the tension rises and how, like, um, there, there's, there's still this, like, undercurrent of comedy. Because I think what I love most about PTA is how it's sometimes how brutal his comedy can be. Like, it really is like a brick wall to your face. Um, and specifically, it's always geared toward outsiders who have never had much control over their lives that now have this one moment of control and this one moment of control is about to undo them. Um, and I think that's like the, the synergy of all those things in that one scene. It's this outsider who is so in over his head and now it's being played for comedy, but it's also extremely tragic <laughs> like seeing him in that situation and being like just at the bottom of the barrel. Yeah, the scene for me that I end up gravitating the most towards, um, interestingly, is the one where Buck is trying to get a loan at the bank and he's getting turned down for it because I think, especially the more that I watch it over the years, like obviously the Alfred Molina scene is like a masterpiece, like in its own, like that just is like a short film that I could watch over and over and over again. But the seeing Buck Swope's journey through Boogie Nights is like the heart of it for me. And the the thing that I keep coming back to the most, and it's partly because of Don Cheadle's performance. I think that he's tremendous in it. He has such like a levity to him, but then he brings the gravity to it as well. And he really does represent, I think, like so much of the heart of the movie. And this guy who is not in the industry for like 
salacious reasons not in it to get laid. Like, he's just trying to, like, make a living. And then he's discovering that as he's trying to make more of, like, a quote-unquote honest living, as far as, like, general society deems it, he is struggling to get off this, like, stigma that he now has on him. And he kind of has to just, like, live with it and figure out how to live with it. And that scene with him trying to get the loan and getting turned down is, like, the most heartbreaking thing for me because you see, like, in his face how he just does not understand why, like, like he is doing all of the right things and still they just won't accept it. And that's really what Buck's Super Stereo World is all about. You know, it's about the customer because people want to know what they're getting into technically. And I have the specific technical hi-fi background to, to answer any technical question that somebody's going to have. You know, I've been in sound equipment long enough to know exactly what a guy wants right when he walks through that door. And that's the kind of personal touch that Buck's Super Stereo World is going to have. Seeing it again, uh... Um, I think what I was struck by, the, the thing that kind of like came to me later uh, when I was watching it then was Don Cheadle's character and how he's so, he's trying so hard to break in to the porn industry. He's trying all these get-ups, he's trying all these identities, trying any other way to kind of morph himself to fitting in. And then at some point he just kind of like leaves and he's like, I'm done. And <laughs> I know this is like, Boogie Nights has now like drawn a lot of comparisons, or Babylon, I should say, has drawn a lot of comparisons to Boogie Nights. But in, in that way, they're much the same in the sense of outsiders trying to break inside um, and finding out that maybe being on the inside is actually the worst thing for you. Oh, and then this is a separate uh, story, but I just I should just say it because of this movie. The first time I watched this movie with my now wife, she was then my girlfriend. This is about 18 years ago in college. Uh, we put on Boogie Nights. She's a, a, a bit of a movie fan as well. I mean, that's how we first connected was watching movies. And then uh, we're watching Boogie Nights. And this is like a little early in our relationship. We start hooking up like during a movie. Now that we've been married for 20 years, we can't, I can't hook up during, I'm like, no, 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 hold on. I got to see the third act of Tar. We'll fuck later. <laughs> but for now, uh, we were watching Boogie Nights and we start hooking up. And then when this is literally the first time she's about to see my penis, uh, I have not, uh, we're, you know, at that level of relationship where my genitals are about to be exposed and i swear to fucking god it's right when amber wave says this is a giant cock and we both start hysterical laughing i swear her first and then i break too and because we i was like oh maybe she didn't hear it we both heard it the timing was insane and it was <laughs> a healthy dose of irony in the line that they, uh, there's no way Julianne Moore could have known that, but she uh, she definitely uh, set me up for a real solid punchline there, or a semi-solid punchline. <laughs> so this movie's been connected to me for a number of different uh, reasons for a number of different parts of my life. <laughs> the first time I saw Boogie Nights, I had that rare, beautiful experience. Within just a few minutes, I realized I was watching one of my favorite movies for the very first time. The film felt perfect to me. It was a perfect work of art, filled to the brim with story and style and humor and horror and great music and hyperkinetic camera work. It was everything I had ever needed in a movie. I was in my 20s when I first saw it, but it put me right back in that adolescent place of first discovering what movies could be, seeing all that potential blossom before your eyes. In the years since, I've come to see a lot of what I would call flaws in Boogie Nights. But to use the word flaw is a funny thing. 
Despite any criticisms I have, I would still be inclined to call Boogie Nights a perfect work of art. And in some respects, it's perfect not despite the flaws I see, but because of them. Those spots where it doesn't quite hit the mark only testify to the young Anderson's urge to move fast and break things, throw everything at the wall, risk making choices he would get criticized for, because nothing great can exist without some risk. That's what makes Boogie Nights not a flawless movie, but a perfect one. It's a movie made by someone dying to show the world that he's a star. A big, bright, shining star. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.